Do you not know, Paul says, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Last week we heard this, but we, but we read of Paul's willingness, his radical willingness really to accommodate himself to all sorts of different people to whom he has been called in order to win them with the gospel. It's just radical accommodation. And now beautifully, our text this week serves as an example of the accommodation that Paul spoke about last week, right? See, in talking about running and prizes and athletes and wreaths, Paul is accommodating or contextualizing his language in such a way that the church in Corinth would understand. So they'd understand. Remember, Corinth was a very, very, very competitive city. And one of the ways that that uh, competition was made manifest was that every two years they would host the Isthmian Games. I practiced that all week just for you. The Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games, at the time of Paul's writing, these were the second largest games in the Roman world. The, the Olympics were the biggest. These were the second biggest. And every two years, Corinth would see this influx of tourists and, and capital and all sorts of things would be happening as people came together and flocked to watch certain events like running, like boxing, like chariot races, but also, if you feel excluded because you're not a sports person, there would be trumpet competitions, right? Artsy people, there you go. Flute competitions, right? And even for the gentler souls among us, poetry readings. It's a very dignified game. Very dignified. See, Paul, the great contextualizer, speaking to this city, he asks the church, the church in Corinth, he asks us now to think of themselves like athletes in the games, like athletes running a race, like, like athletes on display before a watching crowd. And, and like a good coach, Paul, Paul pulls the church into a huddle, and he wants to say three things in this huddle. There's a timeout being called. What does he want to say? The first thing is this. Running with purpose, running as Jesus wants you to run, is marked, he wants to say, by radical other-centeredness. We could say really simply, running with purpose is marked by love. By love. Now, generally speaking, at the risk of offending some of you who I know are very proficient athletes, ath athletes are not known for their selflessness, right? They're not the most, generally speaking, selfless people, right? In fact, to be very, very good at what they do, they must be, to a certain extent, selfish. Uh, the Irish runner, uh, Noel Carroll, he famously quipped, Runners may make better lovers, but sometimes they're lousy spouses, right? See, for the last two chapters, however, Paul has been painting a picture of the Christian life in the way of Jesus that is radically other-centered, radically marked by love. If I can summarize two chapters in 20 seconds, in 8 verse 1, he says, Corinth, you're concerned with knowledge and your status and your stuff, but love builds up. So pursue love, not knowledge, which puffs up. It's just for you. It's just for your reputation. Pursue love, he says. Later in chapter 8, he asks the church 
to consider how eating food offered to idols, which is nothing, Paul says, might actually act as a stumbling block to the weaker brother. So church, consider the weaker brother. Consider the weaker sister. Consider how your actions impact them. In the beginning of chapter 9, Daniel showed us Paul surrendered his just right to payment, to money, in order that the Corinthian church would clearly see the gospel and not have it obscured or hidden by this issue of money. And so Paul is foregoing for the sake of the church, radical other-centeredness. And just last week, Heath showed us, Paul accommodated his life to all people, at great personal cost and personal annoyance. Why? Chapter 9, verse 22, that by all means, what? I like accommodating myself. It's kind of fun to dress up like a Jew or to dress up like a Greek or to speak this way or to speak that way. No. Why is he doing this? That by all means, I might save some. It's for other people. A life run well does not accumulate possessions or status or power for the glorification of self, but surrenders all these things in order that others may see and know and taste and delight in the goodness of Jesus, might know his gospel. And so let's not overcomplicate this this morning. Let's pause Let's ask the Spirit to examine our hearts as we ask, is that how we are running? Is that how you are running this morning? Lord, is that how I'm running? Do I run as if my life belongs to myself or do I run as if my life belongs to Christ? Do you pursue endless knowledge, status, power, with no regard of how it builds up the church? Do you regularly lay down what is rightfully and justly yours so that others may see the gospel more clearly? Do you consider how what you do might in fact be a stumbling block to somebody else in the pew behind you or in front of you or beside you? Are you even willing to accommodate your life in uncomfortable, not sinful, uncomfortable ways to reach the outsider? Running with purpose is marked and shaped by radical other-centeredness because it's marked and shaped by the cross of Jesus. The greatest picture of other-centeredness humanity has ever seen, it's it's marked with love. Is is that how you're running this morning? Is, Is that how we're running as a church this morning? Well, we're still in the huddle And Coach Paul is not done. He says, listen, this is the second thing. The only way you can run with purpose is if you run with discipline, if you run with self-control. Look at verse 25 and verse 27. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, 
but we an imperishable. Look at verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. We, we, we must confess, <laughs> Paul's radical other-centeredness, his living in the way of the cross, sounds at minimum very, very hard and at maximum impossible. It sounds impossible and overwhelming and too much. How does Paul do it? Look at verse 27. I think in verse 27 we find the key. And there Paul writes, But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Uh, the word that we find here for, for discipline is actually much stronger, much more graphic, much more intense. Literally, Paul says, I beat my body black and blue. I beat my body black and blue. Further, the, the, the gentle and keep it under control is perhaps more accurately translated as and make it my slave. And so the phrase is not, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. It, it's really, perhaps with its full force, I beat my body black and blue and make it my slave. Paul, that is weird. What's he saying? It's graphic language. Graphic. And throughout church history, people have taken Paul's analogy because it is an analogy. They've taken his analogy too far and used it to justify self-flagellation, self-harm as this sort of toxic weird, twisted, spiritual discipline. But that's not Paul's point. He's not talking about self-flagellation. He's saying, I'm able to run this race in this way because I have made intentional life decisions to be radically others-centered. It didn't happen by accident. I didn't fall into this way of being. It didn't just happen. One of my, my favorite things about watching the NBA Finals, this might seem like a tangent, but I promise it's not. One of my favorite things about watching the NBA Finals is that after all is said and done, in this, this rare moment of vulnerability and transparency, the athletes and the coaches, they sometimes let you in in those post-game interviews on what it took to get them to that place. What it took to get them to that place. Countless hours in the gym. Birthdays, anniversaries, even funerals missed. Hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on preserving and keeping their, their body. LeBron James has wine baths, right? That kind of stuff. Countless hours watching film. For the best, their lives are disciplined, self-controlled. Their bodies, we could say, are a slave to the goal of winning the championship. And what I think Paul wants to say here with this analogy of the race is how much more, if our prize is imperishable, and we'll see that in a moment, how much more should we be disciplined and self-controlled in our race, in our pursuit? He says the Christian life is no different. Living a life of love towards God, towards others, requires discipline. I, I love how Bible teacher D.A. Carson put it. He said this. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. 
Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness and prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. No, he says, we, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. The truth is, we want running to come naturally, to come instinctively, to come intuitively, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. For some of you this morning, the, the beginning of making your body a slave to the goal and to the prize of that which is imperishable begins but by picking up your Bible this afternoon and then doing that tomorrow and then doing that the day after that. For others of you, it will be regularly attending that community group that you already signed up for. Regularly hearing other people speak and proclaim the gospel over you despite the fact that you don't feel like it, that you had a hard week, that you've been up in the night for six nights in a row, maybe longer. Still for others of us, and I suspect this is many of us, it will mean choosing to pick up the spiritual discipline of rest, refusing to answer email for a day, refusing to answer that phone call today, to be available 24-7. But for all of us, it will mean making big decisions, big, big, big cornerstone decisions about the lives we want ourselves and our family to live, our, our church to exhibit. And asking the question, are these lives conducive to running the race according to Paul's example of radical other-centeredness? Is this running the race in the shape of the cross? See, discipline for you might look like giving away an exorbitant amount of money regularly, habitually, and learning to live with less. For many of us, discipline has looked like moving into an unaffordable city to live in an unlivable apartment in order to preach the gospel to Vancouverites. For us as a church, it might mean that we never serve wine at communion ever again in order to make space for our brother or sister in Christ who are struggling with substance abuse. Like, like the implications of what Paul is saying here, the race that he's asking us to run by, by the power of the Holy Spirit are, are significant. I don't, I don't want to breeze over them. Go to community group this week and press in here. What does discipline, what does self-control look like as you run this race in the way of the cross? It's the second thing. Third thing, last thing Coach Paul wants to remind us of. Running with purpose means that we run with the assurance of a prize. Verse 25, look there with me. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we 
and imperishable. We'll stop there. At the games, when an athlete won an event, they would receive a garland, a crown typically made of of pine needles or some other leaf. And of course, the, the wreath itself was only symbolic of the glory and the honor and the pride that the athlete would receive throughout the Roman Empire. Nonetheless, Paul says that both that physical wreath and also the glory that people will give you and bestow upon you, those things, Paul says, are perishable. Perishable. That is, they will fade and rot and decay and eventually cease to even exist. They will perish. The contrast, however, is that the Christian's prize is imperishable. He says that what we will receive upon the completion of our race will not ruin, it will not fade, it will not die with the memories of the crowd, with the glory of the Roman Empire. No, he says, this is eternal. And so the question is, hope we're all on the edge of our seats right now, what what is this prize? What is this prize that we receive? And the good news is, I think it's actually two things. I think it's actually two things. First thing's this. The crown for Paul, the crown for us, the crown for all those who have come to trust in the gospel because of the way that Paul has run this race, It is the good news of other people coming to believe the gospel itself. In other words, the Corinthian church is Paul's crown. See, see, Paul wants to say about the Corinthians the same thing he says about the Thessalonians. Namely this. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? When Jesus comes back... What's the crown that we're excited about? What does Paul say? Is it not you, Thessalonians? Is it not you, Corinthians? Is it not you, Ephesians? Is it not you, Galatians? Is it not you? The Corinthians are Paul's crown. These people are his imperishable wreath. This this multitude of believers stretched throughout the Roman world, all professing and loving Christ. Because Paul has chosen to live his life in the way of Christ. How how exciting is that thought? I want us to just linger for a moment. Jesus is coming back. We believe that. I know it sounds crazy, but we believe that. And when Jesus comes back, picture Jesus welcoming us into his kingdom and then saying to us, hey, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. And he's giddy, right? He's got a smile on his face. And and, and he opens a door. And they're standing in this room. Again, I don't know how heaven works, but they're standing in this room. Are all the people your life and your witness led to the Lord. And there's even some there that you never knew about. That you had no idea How awesome is that going to be? Is that just me? How amazing is that going to be? Even now, perhaps you can think of their names and their faces. I want that. 
all run for that. Lord, do whatever with my life, with our lives, if we can get that. But I actually think, as as glorious as this is, I think this crown, this imperishable wreath, is actually even grander still. The language of perishable, imperishable, if it sounds familiar to you, comes up once more at the end of this book in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul discusses and lays out for the Corinthian church the return of Jesus, the coming in fullness of his kingdom, when the perishable will what? Put on the imperishable. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the race is over, for the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So I want us, if we can, hold, hold in your mind this running metaphor. If you want, you can close your eyes. And I want you to picture before you whatever that thing is that you're running for. Whatever the prize is that you have before you. And maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's the praise of your peers. Maybe it's a certain standard of living. Maybe it's an accumulation of of homes, of sexual encounters or experiences. And now I want you to picture those things in, in your mind's eye, rotting alongside your rotting corpse. I want you to picture your name being progressively spoken of less and less often until no one remembers you. And this is not morbid. The psalmist instructs us in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So also to the writer in Ecclesiastes, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. I know we don't like talking about death. We're we're death-phobic. We all die. If Christ does not return in our lifetime, we all die. And the living will lay it to heart. See, the wise man and the wise woman sees these earthly reeds and knows that they will rot and fade. And in their place, eyes closed, in their heart, they place a crown imperishable. They place this crown, which is the hope of the resurrection and life eternal with Christ in his kingdom. The author, Randy Alcorn, 
He summarizes the situation well when he writes in his book on heaven. Nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex and drugs and alcohol and a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. But what we really want is the person that we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. Nothing less. We began this morning by asking a question. Is the Christian life, is the Christian race just a baptized rat race? Or is it something fundamentally different? And if the Christian race is different, how do we live it? See, in a technological society, efficiency is the key. Right? Everything is geared towards optimization. Optimize your home life, optimize your spiritual life, optimize your work life. Optimization is the goal and end of all things. But in Paul's radical Christ-shaped life, belonging to God, belonging to Christ, is the truth that must shape us, that must grab our imagination most firmly and most securely. And belonging to Christ, giving our lives completely and totally over to him, will look and feel most of the time very, very inefficient. Did you know that? Most of the time, our life will look to outsiders like it's inefficient and slow and overkill and just strange. It will look like 30 years of living for three years of ministry, right? It's Jesus. It will look like, in Paul's case, being given a torturous thorn in the flesh so that we might know the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. It will look and feel like we are running slowly, doing nothing of consequence, and getting nowhere. It will feel like death in a technological society, and yet all the while, it is producing life in you. Discipline and self-control, rather than being self-generated, will be the result of you partnering with the power of the Holy Spirit, discovering more and more and more just what it means to be God's very temple, filled with God's very power here on earth. And this will all be done to achieve what is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This term rat race was coined to speak of a seemingly endless and futile pursuit. This idea of spending more energy than what the reward is, is worth. The only way then to end the rat race is to begin to to run towards a prize that, that is worth it. And friends, it's not a prize that you can get to on your own legs, on your own strength. No, to try to reach the prize on your own, in your own strength, on your own might, would be aimless running, would be beating the air. 
It would be to choose the path of the religious leaders that Paul described in Romans 10. Do you remember how he describes them there? You have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Why? What's your ignorance? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. These are those who zealous for God, zealous for reaching God and knowing God, instead tried to pursue him on the basis of their own good works. And Paul says, when we do that, you're running aimlessly. Your legs can't carry you. You are not strong enough. As J.I. Packer once said, weakness is the way. The Christian life begins not with a triumphal, I can do it, but with a resigned, I can't do it. And again saying, I can't do it. And again saying, I can't do it. And I imagine it all die saying, Jesus, I can't do it. You do it. You do it. To, to beat the air would be to choose the path of the prophets in 1 Kings 18. Do you remember them? They challenged Elijah to, to a God off, a God battle. We read in 1 Kings 18 of these prophets. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh Baal, answer us. What do we read? But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Why was there no voice? Why was there no answer? Because the God to which they ran towards was a God of their own devising. A God of their own making. A, a finish line they'd built up in their own head. With their own imagination. Running on a hamster wheel trying to reach this God of their own making. Friends, we begin running and we are sustained in our running when we choose to trust in the one who has run before us. When we look to Jesus, as Hebrews invites us to do, who ran the perfect race. Jesus, whose radical other-centeredness led him to the cross for our sin in our place. Jesus, who demonstrates perfect self-control and discipline in the face of mockery and temptation. Jesus, who shows us what it means to live an intentional life. As we look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured a crown of thorns, so that we, you and me and us, might become his crown. Let's pray. So Jesus... Keep us from running aimlessly. Keeping, keep us from, from being those who, who are beating the air. Either trusting in our own legs, our own strength, our own steam, or running after a God of our own devising. Help us. Let's pray that now by your Holy Spirit you just be present among us. You would dwell upon us, lead us, and guide us. Now, however, you're speaking to us in response of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 
East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.